0: It is Monday, May 2nd, in case you forgot what day it is. I often do. I'm going to get right to it because I have an awful lot of thoughts swimming around in this brain of mine, and this could easily get out of control time-wise. So I'm just going to try and tell you what is in here in as few words as possible. If you've ever listened to my podcast, you know that's very, very difficult for me to do, but I'm going to try. So there are articles Popping around on these rock music blogs, left and right, hither and yon, about an interview Ted Nugent gave to a Detroit radio station where he talks about uh, some of the bands that have covered some of his songs. And whoever did the interview asked him to name the best cover version he's ever heard of one of his songs. And he says, unfortunately, I never have. I've heard the versions of cat scratch fever and I love Pantera and I love Lemmy and I love the Ramones, but God, are they terminally Caucasian or what? (laughs) He's right. And he continues. He says, there's a real Motown soulfulness to what me and my boys deliver. There's a grunt and a grind. I'm just going to jump around here in this interview because there's tons of great quotes Uh, I like a sexy, grunting rhythm. When I heard Lemmy's version of Cat Scratch Fever, I thanked him and I do appreciate it. And when I heard Pantera's version of Cat Scratch Fever, I thanked them, but I think they're angry at me because I called them Caucasian. (laughs) The Ramones did Journey to the Center of the Mind. And again, God bless them. I love them and I'm honored that they would choose my songs. But what... Uh, Greg Arama and Dave Palmer did on Journey to the Center of the Mind as kids, teenagers. There's a Motown Funk Brothers pulse to my song and my rhythms. And those guys kind of flail away at it. And again, if you're a big fan of flailing away, God bless you, flail away. I mean, I hate to say it, guys, but he's got our number. He does. He continues. He says, I'm not condemning it, but I'm critiquing it. And it's not quite the thump that my original songs had. So, and he names a bunch of these Detroit bands. And what he's talking about with that Motown sound, that Funk Brothers sound, the Funk Brothers being the backing band for a lot of those great Motown tracks. So what was happening on that stuff? And he cites, you know, these great, Bands Mitch Ryder and early Bob Seger and, you know, Ted's own Amboy Dukes, the Stooges, the MC5. The list goes on. Alice Cooper, originally from Detroit, grew up in, in Phoenix, but the band went moved to Detroit because that's where things were happening. And it's not like rock was invented there. Um, but what was happening, for instance, in Britain... In rock was pretty different from what was happening in Detroit, and the reason for that is because of that Funk Brothers rhythm section sound filtered through uh, rock sensibilities, and that's it's funny because that drive, that driving drum beat, was something that was emulated by the Ramones, and it was a real important part of the Ramones from the beginning and Tommy Ramone demanded that they have that really driving drum beat, which I'm guessing um, he got from the Detroit sound, not just, you know, the Stooges and MC five, who I'm sure he was a fan of, but you know, I'm sure he also knew the history of that. Um, but what the Ramones did with it was undoubtedly very different from what uh, the Stooges did with it. So the difference, as far as I can tell, between what the British bands were doing and what the Detroit bands were doing had an awful lot to do with how the rhythm sections worked. So at that time, and it's really not the case anymore, sadly, but at that time, in both those camps, Britain and Detroit, uh, the, the bass and drums worked together they were kind of the foundation of the song i think the british bands more or less and of course there are exceptions but the british bands more or less use the bass guitar in a primarily percussive way um because that's one of the things it's supposed to do and uh what the ramones did was they took those driving Motown drums, but they put a pop bass guitar on it. The bass guitar in the Ramones doesn't really work with the drums in the way that rock music traditionally does. It's much more of a pop thing, where the bass functions to some extent as another guitar. Now, I happen to think that what D.D. Dee Dee Ramone did... With that, in those really um, tight constraints, creatively was really really cool. And in fact, in the early nineties, uh, I had a stereo where one of the speakers was busted, and so I could only hear out of one speaker. And I was listening to the first Ramones album on cassette, and if you know that album, you know that they mixed it the same way as the first Beatles album, where guitars are on one side and, and bass is on the other. There's a, you get a little bit of bleed through, but it's basically separate channels that they're in. And so the guitar channel was, was the speaker that was broken. So all I was hearing pretty much was bass, drums, and vocals, and that, I think, was the first time I really paid attention to what was happening with the bass guitar. And on the one hand, it's the most rudimentary, simple thing. But what Didi Ramon did just with octaves was really, really, really cool. I mean, he was very limited in what he could do because of the constraints of of um, this genre that they had created. But very, very different from what the... Uh, British bands were doing where it was primarily a percussive thing and from what the Detroit bands were doing which was really cool because it was percussive and driving and all that but it was also melodic. So um, if you listen to the bass lines on that Funk Brothers stuff you'll be blown away because it's totally locked in with the drums and it helps propel the drums and it creates a pulse that you simply don't hear in British rock music. And I love British rock music. I've got nothing against it whatsoever, but there's a pulse and a drive that is so different from everything else that was happening in rock that you hear in this Detroit music. And so that's what Ted Nugent is talking about. And look, it's a, it's a matter of opinion. It's, you know, if you disagree with him, whatever, it's not a big deal. But here's what I think is interesting about this is he talks about, he says something to the effect of, I'm not, I don't have it in front of me right now, but something to the effect of, uh, you know, nobody would ever accuse the Ramones of being sexy. You know, there was like this sexual primal thing happening in this Detroit music. And that's true, but it was also happening in a lot of the, um, in a lot of the British rock and other American rock as well. But punk was really, really, anti-sexual from a musical point of view it um it generally didn't have much in the way of a countering bass so the bass supported these driving drums in the in the Motown sound and in the early uh, Detroit rock sound um, but not so much in the punk bands and even when you think of some of the great bands like the Rosillo's that had fantastic, um, bass playing the, the bass in the Rosillo's isn't really functioning in a percussive sense. It's, it's just fully melodic. So this idea of, um, of the rhythm section and the importance of the rhythm section, um, was central, I think, to the success of rock music in the 70s. But we began to lose that in the late 70s and early 80s because you have these bands that were um, essentially melodic rock bands that that suddenly really started to break through, like Journey and REO Speedwagon were two of the biggest ones. Supertramp as well. Oh, they were, you could barely even call them a rock band. But some of the great metal bands started working to kind of try to emulate that success. They wanted to be, you know, they wanted to have big top 40 hits as well. And, but it was really with bands like Def Leppard that, you know, so you'd have a band like ACDC or Quiet Riot that would have a big hit, but Def Leppard really bridged the gap between rock and pop. And then there were a couple other things that happened. The, Um, the technology got to the point where more and more bands were um, having their drummers play to a metronome, what we call a click track, where you would have a metronome pumped into the studio headphones. And the goal when you play to a, a click track is to play around the click, as they say. It's the equivalent of what a piano player does when they employ rubato. In their playing so the idea is you stay at an even tempo uh, but you don't stay dead on the tempo so as to avoid um essentially sounding like a drum machine it'll sound too mechanical and robotic if you stay dead on the beat so you're trying to kind of play around the beat um, i would argue that over time playing around the beat became maybe a little less important uh, if you listen to a lot of the great 70s albums, rock albums, even some of the prog rock where they were just so seemingly focused on precision and perfection and, you know, math and stuff. But you listen to some of those Rush records and you'll hear, you know, Getty Lee going off pitch on a high note here and there, and they left it in. And I think the reason they left it in isn't because they didn't have the time or money to do another take, but because... Part of what they were trying to do at that time was replicate the band's live feel. It was sort of trying to have the best of both worlds. You can control a lot of things in the studio that you can't control on a stage, but you don't want it to be so sterile that it doesn't even sound like a real band anymore. We don't care so much about that now, so that's a lot of the reason why, in addition to the rhythm section issues, why... Rock music does sound so sterile now, especially punk. I'm including myself in this, by the way. And I'll explain why in a minute. Because there's a good reason for it. Um, So we move along in the 80s, and as these metal bands in particular start to get more poppy, what happened was a lot of people, a lot of younger people, were sort of like, hey, what happened to all the great metal bands? They wimped out and they sold out. And that resulted in these um in all these new genres of or subgenres of metal, speed metal, death metal, black metal. That was all a direct response to um to metal bands going pop. And what they brought to the table that metal bands had never had before was an appreciation of punk and especially of hardcore, like early 80s hardcore. So the idea was play really fast and you're back to that really insistent drum beat. But it's absolutely one-dimensional because that's the way it was in hardcore. So, and there were these bands that they called at the time crossover bands that were kind of punk and metal. They were really just bad metal bands for the most part, but... Um, but the approach and the concept of the rhythm section of those bands was just like pure attack. It was, it was just assault the listener, right? There was no subtlety. It was completely one dimensional. And, um, and to that end, what the bass did, the, really the function of the bass and the metal band went from, you know, all the cool stuff that geezer Butler did with black Sabbath and it just became a blunt instrument. It was just like hammer away and keep, you know, keep some low end in the mix, really. It was irrelevant. In fact, I think there's a uh, I'm not real familiar with Metallica because I don't like them, but I'm pretty sure there's a pretty famous Metallica album where the bass essentially isn't even on the record. It was it was pretty much mixed out of the record because it's irrelevant. So, um so now you've got Kind of the worst aspects of punk being being picked up by metal, and and now let's add to it Nirvana. In 1991, they put out this big hit record, Nevermind, and this is the record where um, where finally they went too far. It's like Jurassic Park. You 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 are so concerned with whether you uh, could do it that you didn't ask if you should do it. Right? We're talking about over compression. In recording mixing and mastering so the idea prior to you've got you've got like pre-nirvana and post-nirvana the idea pre-nirvana was you want to accentuate the dynamics the loud and the soft the reason for this is because if there's a soft part you want it to register with people if there's a loud part you want it to have an effect on people but what Uh, what they did with nirvana was they compressed everything so that instead of having high highs and low lows, everything got compressed into the middle. That's the simplest way to put it. And the result is that nothing really has much of an effect. There are no dynamics for all intents and purposes. It's just one, it's just a sledgehammer from the first note to the last. The human ear can only take so much of that, right? Right. It's unnatural when you are walking around outside or in a shopping mall or at a ball game, whatever it is, you're hearing everything dynamically. And so when you hear everything without any dynamics at all, it's jarring to the ear and it makes the ear get tired very quickly. It's very unnatural. So um, so now... You've got the you've got that added to these kind of monotonous monolithic drum beats. So things have really gotten out of control. Okay. And they're doing things like in metal, like, you know, adding double bass drums. And that, of course, gets out of control immediately. And it just adds to that, to that over-the-top, insisting upon itself um, drum sound that that ironically ends up having the exact opposite effect of what it's intended to have. So it's supposed to be this kind of thunderous, um, intense thing, and it just becomes monotonous and boring. Um, So now you go into the 2000s, and the recording industry goes down the toilet. So it's already been really hard to get noticed and get signed to a label and build an audience. Now it's even harder because there's even less money, especially not just for established bands, but for up and coming bands. So it then became necessary, um, that bands had to find an alternative to the traditional ways of doing things where you would go out and, and, uh, make a short, cheap demo tape and then use that to get shows and build an audience. You couldn't really do that anymore. And it just so happened, uh, in a serendipitous way that, uh, the technology uh, started to improve uh, and started to get cheaper for home recording. So, uh, So what happened very quickly is that rock bands no longer needed to be a drummer, bassist, guitarist or two, and a singer. Now it needed to be those things, but one of them had to be a recording engineer. Somebody had to learn how to record. Now the problem is you've got, on the one hand, this relatively cheap recording software. You invest in a few mics. It's not that much money. But you still don't have a proper studio. And even if you did, it's going to be a mess because you're not really that experienced if you try to record the whole band at once. Plus, everything that you read, because you're trying to teach yourself how to record, everything that you read is geared towards this new way of doing things where bands don't play together and things are recorded separately. So now, um, this isn't a new thing that bands were recording tracks separately. It had been done for many years before that. But now, it's almost as though there's no choice. So that was kind of like the last gasp um, where, you know, even in the 90s, when we would make records, we would, at least at the beginning of the 90s, maybe record bass and drums together, right? And then do a few overdubs here as needed, okay? So you're recording on tape, and there's only so much you can do. Why? Well, because when you're recording on tape, you've got a a start button and a stop button, and when you hit that start button, there is a gap between the pressing of the button and the tape actually starting to record, So there are certain things you can do if you've got, for instance, a word or a phrase that you want to punch in. So you want to record over the bad take you did and you've got space before that word starts where, where nothing's being sung and you've got space after it, then you can punch it in. So you can essentially play it and then hit record. The singer sings the line and then you hit stop and you stop recording so that what was recorded before and after it is preserved. But the key is you've got to have that space to work with because of that gap. And so you can't do it with drums. There's no such thing as punching in drums because there's, there's no point at which there's nothing happening. I mean, even if you kind of um, let it, let things ring out, you can't record over the decay or it'll sound strange. I guess if you stop dead for a period of time in the middle of the song, you could punch in, but basically people never did it. I did hear that, um, it must've been in the late eighties that Metallica had done a record where they wanted to edit all the, the drum parts and they did. And the way they did it was by actually, taking the takes they wanted and the engineer would sit there with a razor blade cutting the actual tape in the spots and then splicing it together which of course would have been very very time consuming and very expensive so it wasn't something that most people did but now there is no gap between the start and the stop button it's all digital so you can edit anything and everything including drums and because we can do it like Jurassic Park we just do it we don't think about whether we should although in our defense there aren't much in the way of options and the reason for that is that if you want to do it the old way and you want to say let's get into a room you know go back to the days of of Elvis and and Sun Studios and and Motown and all that get everybody in a room you know put up some soundproofing between the, the drums and the amps and stuff, and just but just play as a band. It's very expensive. First of all, in order to be able to do that, well, you got to get together and rehearse. And you've got to pay for that rehearsal time and space. You've got to pay per diems. You've got to pay for lodging, especially if you're like me and you have a band with five people in five different states. Um, people got to take time off work. It's a big production and it's expensive. And then you got to go in and record and then decide what are you going to do and what aren't you going to do in terms of overdubs? Like how pure do you want to be? And, um, and I, I don't care enough about it to, to kind of be really, really like over the top, but yeah, if I had the money, I wouldn't mind trying to do a mostly live recording. It would be fun. And I think it would probably come out pretty cool. I know my guys can rock, but the way we do things now, it's kind of hard to get that across, right? So, like, especially on this new album we have coming out, there's a lot of cool stuff happening on the bass guitar. There's a lot of cool interplay between the bass and drums. But the fact is, we've still got a drummer recording to a pre-recorded demo tape of my guitar and vocals, or or Mike's guitar and vocal and my vocals. But um, but it's set at a uh, at a predetermined uh, tempo that doesn't fluctuate. So, and and if you do that, it's hard to get into a rock and groove. And you know this is. You'll see this with an awful lot of rock bands nowadays, where they even nowadays where they even do it live. The drummer will be playing to a click or a pre-recorded track on stage, actually. So, if you ever wondered. You know, what is? why don't bands kind of rock the way they used to? Or you kind of have that Ted Nugent attitude of, yeah, this stuff doesn't really rock. There's there's a lot of reasons why. You've got um, a totally different approach to what a rhythm section is and ought to be. You've got over-compression and you've got a lack of money and cheap and easy recording technology that allows you to cut and paste everything. So you don't actually need to be a and band that's really well-rehearsed in order to make a solid recording that people like. And I guess the most important point there is the what-people-like part because everybody's used to hearing things this way. I don't even know if you could get away with doing kind of a more live, raucous-type recording anymore. Um, well, I think if you're a good enough band, you could, but uh but there, so there's a lot of reasons why uh bands don't really rock the way they used to and it may turn out to be that in the course of history the the golden era of the late 60s through the late 70s may end up having been a complete anomaly or we may end up with another generation of people a new generation of people who come along and say you know I'm going to reject all these uh, more modern ways of recording and go back to, you know, the old-fashioned thing of just sitting there and jamming and, and recording a band essentially live. Um, if the technology can evolve to where we can um, splice in the tiniest little cymbal hit, then I would imagine it could evolve to the point where it can handle and accommodate that and and hopefully make that process cost-effective too. And none of this is to say that there aren't great rock bands out there and newer rock bands that are great out there. There are, but, um, but it's a little antiseptic and it's a little asexual or at least non-sexual. And, uh, um, and there are good reasons for that. And that's all I have to say about that. I'm sorry I went on so long, but you know what? It could have been worse. In any case, as always, I've enjoyed talking at you. Have a great week. I will, with any luck, return next Monday, uh, assuming I don't get too busy. Until then, have a great week, and please remember, I love you all very much. So long.